morning. Some of you be familiar with the writer Philip Yancey. Philip was talking to a friend of his named Mike who works with homeless people. And Mike explained to him that a homeless person typically has reached such a a bottom in their life. They've reached such, such a low point that they're not pretentious. They don't try to build up an image. They don't try to conform. And in fact, when they pray, they just pray from their hearts. In fact, he said, Mike said, even with more uh, reality than he sometimes heard in churches. So Yancey asked him a question. Can, can you give me an example of this? And so Mike told him about an instance when he and his friend were on the streets playing the guitar, singing the song, As the Deer Pants for the Water, So My Soul Pants After You. And there was a man, a homeless guy that they knew named David who just started weeping. And David said, man, I need that water. I'm an alcoholic and I need to be healed. Now, David is not the only person in the world, in our world, or in the world of Jesus' day that has a lot of spiritual thirst. And we're going to look at one today. So I want to invite your attention to John chapter 4 in the New Testament. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And there's an encounter here with Jesus and of person who's very, very thirsty spiritually, the woman at the well. Now, the setting of this passage is Jesus is on his way back to Galilee from Judea. I'll put a map up in a second so you can understand what that means. And as he's on the way back, he goes through Samaria and he encounters a woman at Jacob's well. Now, this story has often been used to show how Jesus reaches out to people for salvation and almost even as a model for evangelism as those of us who know Christ share Christ with others. And it's legitimate to do it that. In fact, I think I've done that before. But there's more to the story than that. This is a story about worship. And why is that important? We are in a series here at Harvest. This is the second of six weeks called Head Values, Heart Values. And Jesus, as the head of the church, we're trying to find out what he values. And we want his values to be the values of our heart. And so that's what we're going to look at as we walk through this passage. So verse 1 of John chapter 4. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining 
and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now what does this mean he had to go through Samaria? Let me put this map up and show you why he really didn't, quote, have to go through Samaria. In fact, here's Judea. This is the area where he was near Ephraim. And you see Samaria is this region here in the middle. And up on the top is Galilee. And do you see the red arrow there on the screen? That was the traditional route. If you were a Jewish person and you were going to go from Judea up to Galilee, this is the route you would take. Anybody notice anything about that route that's strange? (laughs) It goes around Samaria. And there was a reason for that. We'll get into it in the passage. If you were Jewish in that day, you didn't want anything to do with Samaritans. And so you would, the traditional route is you would just go all the way out of your way to get up to Samaria. But in green is Jesus' route. (laughs) He went right through Samaria. So when John is telling us Jesus had to go through Samaria, there's something more important in Samaria than just a route. There's a, there's a mission for Jesus in Samaria. There's a person in Samaria. In fact, a whole town full of people that Jesus wants to communicate to. Verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So as we walk through this passage, we're going to ask the question, what does true worship involve? That's a very, very common word, worship, that is, in our society as a whole, and and especially in our church society. It's very common to say the word worship, but but what does it involve? Well, let's, let's walk through the passage and let the passage reveal that to us. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now think about this. Jesus was alone in that moment. The disciples had gone into town to get food. And a woman in the middle of the day, by herself apparently, comes to draw water from this well. That was not the cultural norm. Normally, it would have been a group of women coming earlier in the day or later in the day, but not then. 
and not alone. Why did this woman come alone? Could it be, as we're going to find out later in the passage, that she was ostracized? Could it be that she didn't feel like she was a part of the community? Could it be that she was living a life of shame? I think so. And so she comes by herself and now, surprisingly, a man is talking to her, which wasn't a normal thing in that culture, and a Jewish man at that. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, nearly 800 years before the time of Jesus, the nation of Syria came into Samaria where the Jewish people were living, and they deported them. They took kind of the leading citizens and deported them, and the Jewish people that were left the lower class, so to speak, then intermarried with Samaritans. And that created this division. Because later when the Jewish people came back into their land, now there's this group of people, these Samaritans, that they viewed as religious half-breeds. That was the way they thought of it, as disgusting As that is, they were prejudiced against them. They didn't like them. They were like, these people are traitors and we don't want anything to do with them. I think that's why John says this little parenthetical statement. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus is speaking to this woman, but she misses some things. She, she misunderstands some things. All she saw in Jesus, I mean, she didn't have like the crosses, cross necklace like we have. She didn't have all the history. She didn't know who he was or what he was going to do. All she saw was this Jewish man that was tired. That's, that was her perception of this man. She has no clue about his glory. She has no clue that that man is the one who created her. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, the gift of God, that most likely refers to eternal life. So Jesus is essentially saying, if if you knew who I was, if you knew about eternal life, you wouldn't be asking me for just physical water. I'm asking you for physical water. You would be asking for living water, right? Or you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Now, Living water actually meant literally, that phrase meant literally running fresh water. We take that for granted in our culture. But in the Middle East, it was dry and it was arid. And to see living, running water, it would be, wow, 
But there's more to it than just physical water because it, there's a figurative sense here too. And to get the, the grasp of it, let's go back to the Old Testament for a second. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 where the prophet said, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of, say it out loud with me, living water. And have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns. Cannot hold water. And Ezekiel 36, another prophet says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove you, uh, remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so in John 4, when Jesus is talking about living water, he's talking about the satisfying eternal life that only the Savior and Messiah of the world can give. I can give you living water. You are thirsty. We're going to find out how thirsty she was in a minute. But because of this double meaning of living water, she misunderstands. Look at verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Now, if Jesus, without expending any energy to dig the well, would have been able to provide water this way, he would be greater than Jacob. But he's not talking about actual water. And guess what? He is greater than the patriarch Jacob. So he answers her in verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Never thirst. What Jesus can provide does not just quench a temporary thirst, but it, it quenches the deepest thirst and longings that we have as people. Everybody is born with this incredibly deep hole in their heart that only God can satisfy. Money can't satisfy it. Sex can't satisfy it. Fame can't satisfy it. Fun, pleasure, fulfillment, marriage, relationship. Nothing can satisfy it except for God. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I can give you this. It's like St. Augustine of old said, you have made our hearts restless and they will be restless until they find rest in you. Worship starts exactly where this woman's failure started. And that is by recognizing who Jesus is. Recognizing the majesty 
of Jesus Christ. That is what worship fundamentally is all about. It's not fundamental. I'm thankful for corporate worship. I'm thankful we come and gather in a place. But essentially, worship is not about gathering in a certain place with a number of other people. Worship is not about singing songs of worship. Worship is about focusing on the majesty of Jesus. And you can do that here as we gather and through songs and prayers and all the other ways, but you can do it in a lot of other places too, all week long. It, worship involves a spirit of wonder. It's a spirit of awe at God. It's like, I'm in the presence of God. This transcendence is what everybody longs for, even they don't even know it necessarily. It's like Moses in the Old Testament at the burning bush taking his shoes off. It's like Isaiah in the passage that Corey read. Woe is me, I'm a man of sinful lips. So here's, here's the first answer to what does true worship involve if you're, if you're taking notes. It's focusing on the majesty of Jesus Christ. An incredible scene in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. We don't have time to read it all. But Revelation 4... They're gathered in the throne room and all of these beings and elders are bowing and they're worshiping before God the Father because he created. And then there's a scroll there and there, nobody's able to open the scroll and they're, who can open the scroll? And in Revelation chapter 5, John says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Worship is focusing on Jesus' majesty. It's not just seeing what other people do. It's focusing on Jesus' majesty. Let's go back into our story in John 4 and pick up at verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Okay, give it to me. This sounds great. I'll never thirst again. Give me this water. But she still doesn't quite get it yet. And look what Jesus says to her. Go call your husband and come back. Oh, I have no husband, she replied. So not only does this woman misunderstand who Jesus is, 
I think she misunderstands who she was. <laughs> she must misunderstood the true nature of her need. She had a lot of earthly quests. She had a lot of earthly pursuits, but they had left her empty. She needed salvation. She needed a reason to live beyond just satisfying her physical urges and her emotional emptiness. She needed something more. So Jesus confronts her. He gets to the real issue here, and he does it in a gracious way. I think the most gracious way he could have confronted her. He just, hey, call your husband. And she said, well, I don't have one. So the passage continues. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband, What you have just said is quite true. Now think about this for a minute. Everybody knew this woman had had five husbands. Everybody knew she was living with somebody that wasn't her husband. I think that's why she came by herself to the well. I think she felt ostracized from the other women in the village And isn't it amazing that Jesus, the most pure, holy being in the universe, wasn't afraid of her (laughs) and wasn't afraid to be seen with her or to talk to her or to reach out to her in love? But he had to get to the truth. He had to help her see what her need was. And here's, here's the truth. All of us, whether you've had five husbands or not, I mean, you might have only had four. But whether you've had five husbands or not, all of us are sinful and we're separated from God by our sin. And we've tried all kind of things to feel better about ourselves. We've tried to fill our life with something. It might be something illicit like illegal drugs. It might be something that's respectable, like being a success. But we're all in that boat and Jesus is driving her so she can see her need. And before she can ever worship, she has to be saved. She has to admit that she's sinful, that she's wrong, And that she needs God's forgiveness. That's where worship starts. Worship starts when we admit, I need you, Jesus, in my life. And I'll give you my life. It starts there, but it also continues for those of us who have indeed put our faith in Jesus Christ in that way and received him as our Lord and Savior. Worship for us is not just saying the right words or singing the right songs and then living any way we want to. That's sinful. Worship involves a godly, holy lifestyle. And so the second thing that true worship involves is salvation and life change through Jesus. So think about it. So far we've seen that worship involves focusing on the majesty of Jesus Christ 
And secondly, worship is involves salvation, being saved and having our lives changed by Jesus. Do you see the you see any common thread so far? Jesus. And I don't know who you are today. I don't know who you are sitting here. I don't know who you are listening online today. But please hear us. We're not talking about religion today. We're talking about a relationship with the God of the universe who decided to reveal himself to you and me by coming and living as a divine man. He was fully God and fully man and his name was Jesus Christ and he was perfect and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned even though we had. And he said, you know what? I'm going to take care of your sin. I'm going to die for you and I'm going to pay for it. And he was buried and he rose again. And now he invites all by faith to come to him and be saved. If you're that person, let today be the day that you open your heart and life to him. And you can begin the path of being a worshiper. Well, it's salvation and life change through Jesus Christ. I love Psalm 95. It's a great passage of worship. It's a great passage in the Old Testament. It talks about gathering. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Verse 6, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are his people, the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. It's all of this aspect of worship. It's singing, it's shouting, it's bowing, it's being reverent. It's all of that. And then... The tone changes, and it almost seems out of place. The next verse that says, today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness. And you go, wait a minute, what's going on here? Here's what's going on. Worship is all of it. Worship is singing and shouting and bowing, but it's hearing God's voice through his word and it's obeying it in our lives. And that's what makes worship. It's not just saying things, it's living things, living the truth. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies or offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let's dive back into John chapter 4. Sir, verse 19, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. (laughs) Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's still focusing on the externals, like where are you supposed to go to worship? This mountain or that mountain? And he's focusing on the heart. He's focusing on the internal. And he says in verse 21, woman, Jesus replied me, uh, replied, believe me, a time is coming 
When you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. This period has now come. All up until this point, the focus was on a place. But now in the person and ministry of Jesus, this new period of worship has come. And there's an amazing, amazing statement here in verse 23 to me. The Father seeks a certain kind of worshipers. Just like... Just like a hungry person seeks food or a mother might seek her lost child, God seeks worshipers. Not that he needs worshipers. Doesn't say that he needs worshipers. It's not that he has ego problems like, oh, I need to, I need to receive some words of affirmation now. That's my love language. Some of you will get that on the way home. But he knows what will happen to us when we really worship. He knows what it does for us. It puts us in the place where we're supposed to be before him. Verse 24, God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, worship, the word worship appears at least eight times in these surrounding verses. That word means to worship, to fall down, to kneel, to bow low at someone's feet. Worship is declaring God's worth. It's praising him for who he is. And what does this mean when he says, must worship in the spirit and in truth? It's a tough one. I don't think there's two different characteristics here. There are two aspects in worshiping in the spirit and worshiping in truth. Yes, but if you read the way the original language is written, these words, this phrase is kind of connected together. The in, unlike most English translations, the in governs both of them. So like in spirit and truth. So, for instance, it's really one combined characteristic. Worshiping in spirit and truth is essentially one thing. D.A. Carson, for instance, says he describes it as worship is essentially God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as you know and conform to the truth, God's word, who has become flesh, The one who is God's truth, Jesus. So spirit means that it's based on the fullness of life that God has given us in the Holy Spirit to to Christians. And truth is based on God's self-expression of truth, who is Jesus. Jesus is the truth and God's word is the truth. So true worship has to be centered on Jesus and the Bible. 
That means everything we do should be grounded in this book and focused on Jesus. Every song we sing, we need to ask, do these words, do these words accord with the truth of scripture? That's what's most important about it. Worship is internal. It's not external. It's not about where you worship. It's who you worship and how you worship. Verse 25, so the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So worship is responding directly to God in spirit and truth. Responding directly to God. Worship is so big that it's hard to define. But let me give you three definitions. There's, There's so many, but all of these have something to say for them. William Temple said, To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination with the beauty of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God, and all of this gathered up in adoration. Evelyn Underhill says, Worship is the total adoring response of man to the one eternal God self-revealed in time. And the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia defines worship as the dramatic celebration of God in His supreme worth in such a manner that His worthiness becomes the norm and inspiration of human living. That's why our goal as a church, that's why our value as a church is to value worship the way Jesus values it. Now, it's interesting. In this series, we're looking at the six main values of this church. And we're talking today about worship. Last week, we talked about Scripture. But one thing that's very, very important to understand is these values don't, they're not like orbiting off, uh, planets orbiting off in their own orbit somewhere, never connecting with each other. Scripture and worship are linked. (laughs) There's no true worship without the Word of God, right? And we've seen that based on the truth here. Next week, we're going to talk about disciple-making. The first step of disciple-making is talking to someone who's not a Christian yet and helping them understand who Jesus is so they can become a Christian. That's what Jesus is doing right here. He's helping this woman become a disciple. And we don't have time. We're not going to go any further in the passage. But she does go out to the community, if you read the rest of the story, and she says, hey, everybody, there's a guy here who told me everything I did. And and the text says that many of the Samaritans believed in him because of that. So worship and scripture and disciple making just go back and forth with each other. So let me wrap up by asking the question, how does a church value worship? There's so many ways, but I want to just, I want to give you, I was going to give you a few. First of all, privately all week long. 
Private worship sets the stage for public worship. This, what we do here on Sunday is supposed to be the overflow. The design is we've all been worshiping God all week long. And now when we come together with our brothers and sisters, we just can't wait to tell him about it and each other about it. Worship in families. If you're a parent, you have an incredible opportunity. You don't have to be a, a, a trained scholar to worship with your family. And I'll tell you why I know that. Because my dad, who's in heaven, had a high school degree. But he led his family in worship. And I remember that as a kid. Moms, dads, let's lead our kids in worship. Just something simple. Read some scripture. What does it say about God? Let's worship God for it. And then I want to talk for a minute, a couple minutes maybe, about having a worship mindset when the church gathers. Because the church consists of you and me. And the question is, what kind of mindset do we bring in when we come in here Sunday morning? Well, what does that involve? Let me just give you a few suggestions about what a worship mindset might look like for you. First of all, there's a refusal to critique. A a real worshiper is only going to critique themselves. They're not going to critique other people around them or the people on stage. A religious spectator might ask, was the worship style what I preferred? But a worshiper asked, was I prompted and led to worship? A religious spectator might ask, did the musician or the speaker do a good job? But a worshiper will ask, did I allow their ministry to prompt me to worship? A religious spectator might ask, what are the people around me saying or doing or thinking or wearing? And a worshiper will ask, God, am I worshiping you? Secondly, a worship mindset is substance over style. What's the substance? What's the substance of the song? What is this song saying that I'm singing? Do I, do I sing it just because I like the melody? Do I, do I sing louder or better because I like hymns and this happens to be a hymn? Or I like newer music and I, and I sing better that, that, those are stylistic things. And the question is, what's the, what's the substance? I think today we sang something that was published in the 1700s. And something that was just written three or four years ago. Substance over style. Private, I mentioned this as part of the first one, private before public. All week long, read about worship. (laughs) Listen to worship music, good worship music. Meditate on the Psalms. That's probably helped me worship more than anything else is reading over and over and over and over the Psalms. Over and over and over. There's so many of them, 150. By the time you get back around to them, you forgot what you read the first time. They're worshipful. Worshiping 24-7. Praying at home through the week and in your groups. Praying for Sunday. Praying for the Sunday gathering. Those are ways that it's private before public. And now, what I call all worship. And this is about the service itself. Okay, so I want to put up a couple different images here. And some people think of a worship service this way. They are very, 
they, they have, they divide it up into compartments. Okay, we have the worship part of the service, meaning the music. And then we have the preaching. And then there's some other things, you know, giving or praying or hugging people or whatever. Here's my answer to that. It's real simple. That is not biblical. That is, that might be cultural. That might be what you grew up with. That might be what you were taught or what was modeled for you. But let me put another model here that I think is the biblical model. The biblical model is that everything we do when we gather is worship. And we worship through song. And we worship through the word. And we worship through prayer. And we worship through giving. And we worship in how we serve one another. Does that make sense? That, that's a mindset. And all of us probably have been guilty. Like, oh, well, how was the worship? Meaning, how was the first 25 minutes of the service? But it's, it's unified biblically. So the goal is to value worship the way Jesus values it. All right, let me ask you an honest question. I'm, gonna, I'm definitely raising my hand on this one because I'm guilty. But how many of you spouses have bought your spouse a present sometime that you thought was a really good idea and it turned out to not be a really good idea. Anybody out there with me on that one? There's, there was, there's a magazine that doesn't exist. There aren't many magazines that exist anymore, period, but a magazine called Leadership, and the editor, Marshall Shelley, tells about a time when he bought his wife, Susan, an anniversary gift that he was proud of. I just want to read it. It's short, but I want to read it as we wrap up. Early in our marriage, I gave my wife a terrific anniversary gift, a rain gauge. A rain gauge. At least I thought it was a great gift. I mean, Susan, after all, is is the daughter of a farmer, and she keeps close Watch on the weather. I envisioned her delight and nostalgia (laughs) while tracking our backyard precipitation. (laughs) I congratulated myself on my creativity. Guess what? Susan was not impressed. A rain gauge for our anniversary? The rain gauge is now a family joke. A classic example of a gift enjoyed by the giver, but not the receiver. And Shelley continues, one word I hear a lot these days is authentic. As in, we seek authentic worship. Usually this means we're trying to create an experience 
that helps worshipers feel something. Nothing wrong with that. But if our focus is only on our experience, we may be giving God a rain gauge. Are we offering in worship a gift we enjoy and figuring God will like it? A real gift, real worship, means knowing what is important to the receiver. And John chapter 4 and the other scriptures I have given you show you what matters to God. It's focusing on the majesty of Jesus. It's being saved and living a life of godliness. It's responding directly to God in spirit and truth. Now, I've used a lot of words in this sermon, probably more than 3,000. But I want to close with 13 more that the late Tim Keller spoke. Worship is seeing what God is worth and giving Him what He's worth. Worship is seeing what God is worth and giving Him what He's worth. Let's bow our heads together, please.